Back in cinema's earliest days, when it was just an experiment, when pioneers were so uncertain of its parameters, they were still establishing its grammar. Debate swarmed as to what the new medium could and should be. The arguments invariably whittled down to whether cinema should dramatise or document the world. Made by the Lumiere brothers, the first documentaries, or actualités, recorded everyday events such as workers leaving the factory and feeding the baby. But audiences soon found such subjects too banal for the new spectacle of watching moving images. So filmmakers began trekking to remote corners of the globe to document distant lives. By 1900, they were in such abundance there was a name for them, travelogues. But while they did entertain, for the most part, they really only idealised the indigenous peoples as noble savages, unspoiled by technology and modernity. As if in response, there then came the city film which celebrated technology and modernity. The first such example dates from 1910, when photographers Paul Strand and Charles Sheeler made a 10-minute ode to the city of Strand's birth. Called Manhattan, or New York the Magnificent, it is intertitles from several Walt Whitman's poems, including Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, all to extol the virtues of the metropolis. Gorgeous clouds of the sunset, drench with your splendor me, or the men and women generations after me. Cross from shore to shore, countless crowds of passengers. Stand up, tall masts of Manahatta. Stand up, beautiful hills of Brooklyn. The Great War put the fledgling genre on hold, but in 1926, Brazilian-born Alberto Cavalcanti went to Paris where he made Rien que les heures, or Nothing But Time. Running at 45 minutes and depicting 24 hours in the French capital, Cavalcanti's film established the genre structure, a day in the life of a city. The next year, German director Walter Guttmann made Berlin, Symphony of a Great City. The title may sound poetic, but its form is rather distinct. Lasting little over an hour, Berlin contains five separate sequences, yet a symphony traditionally has only four movements. Which means that the composer Edmund Meisel, who had already scored Eisenstein's Battleship Atemken and October, had to tailor the symphonic form to fit Ruttmann's structure. But, it must be said, no less than four of Gustav Mahler's symphonies deployed the quintet form. Karl Goldmark did the same in his first symphony, Rustic Wedding. Hector Berlioz provided a fifth section in Fantastique, and Beethoven did the same for the pastoral. Yet, while Berlin has some fascinating moments, for all of Ruttmann's symphonic demands, the film itself is rather formal in its visual composition and editing, which means that we have to look east from Berlin to find real innovation. In 1927, the same year as Ruttmann's symphony, Russian filmmakers Mikhail Kaufman and Ilya Koplin made Moscow. Another hour-long piece, it stands apart from Ruttmann's film because of Kaufman's cinematography and editing. While offering near perfunctory shots of people at work in factories or at leisure in parks, Kaufman manages some extreme perspectives of the city, either high or low angles and travelling shots. And then in editing the film, Kaufman used a variety of techniques such as stop motion, split screen and multiple exposure. 
which means it is in Moscow that the City Symphony really separates itself from the travelogues, fully embracing modernity by embracing all manner of cinematic experimentation. But innovative as Moscow is, it is a film directed by Kaufman's brother in 1929 that is by far the more celebrated and venerated. Ziga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera. Born in Bialystok, then part of the Russian Empire, Ziga Vertov entered the world as Daniel Abelevich Kaufman on January 2nd, 1896, barely five days after the Lumiere brothers gave birth to cinema in the basement of a Paris cafe. Coming from a Jewish background, Kaufman russified his name in 1918 to Denis Arkadievich, and then, when he began working in the fledgling Soviet film industry, he adopted the name Ziga Vertov, which translates from the Ukrainian as spinning top. So, with its connotations of motion and energy, Ziga Vertov is less a pseudonym and more a synonym. Here is Ian Christie, Professor of Film and Media History in Burbeck, University of London. When the revolution came, he kind of fell into film, which is not very different really from what happened to Eisenstein, for instance, and quite a number of others. Um, it was really a new generation of people who encountered film, having never had any ambition to work in cinema uh, when they were growing up. In Vietnam's case, though, he started earlier, really, than almost anybody else. So while people like Eisenstein were still, you know, trying to find their way, and Eisenstein was in theatre at this time, Vietnam fell into film at the very, very beginning of the post-revolutionary period and actually found himself in charge of chronicling the very early stages of, you know, the Soviet regime, the establishment of the Soviet regime. And undoubtedly, I think that marked him. He felt like a pioneer. But it also meant that he cut his teeth on chronicles, well, what we would call documentaries today, um, filming what was happening, joining it up, and trying to find ways of presenting this kind of living chronicle um, as quickly as possible so that people could actually see the revolution taking shape around them. As for Vertov's wife, Elisaveta Svalova, she had been born in 1900 and began editing newsreels for Pathé when she was just 14. By then, World War I had begun and perhaps because it was German in origin, she also chose to Russify her surname. But given that her German surname was Schnitt, which means cut, it seems she was always destined to become an editor. Together, Svalova and Vertov were quite a cinematic force, and in 1922, they united with Vertov's brother Mikhail to publish a film manifesto. Here is Adrian Martin, adjunct associate professor at Monash University, reading the declaration. We proclaim the old films based on the romance, theatrical films and the like to be leprous. Keep away from them. Keep your eyes off them. They're mortally dangerous, contagious. We affirm the future of cinema art by denying its present. Cinematography must die so that the art of cinema may live. We call for its death to be hastened. We protest against the mixing of the arts, which many call synthesis, the mixture of bad colours, even those ideally selected from the spectrum, produces not white, but mud. Synthesis should come at the summit of each art's achievement and not before. We are cleansing cinema of foreign matter, of music, literature and theatre. We seek our own rhythm, one lifted from nowhere else, and we find it in the movements of things. 
We invite you to flee the sweet embraces of the romance, the poison of the psychological novel, the clutches of the theatre of adultery, to turn your back on music, to flee out into the open, into four dimensions, three plus time, in search of our own material, our metre and rhythm. That was another dilemma for early filmmakers. For those who felt that cinema's future was in fiction, the immediate option was to borrow from other arts where fiction was already established, namely novels and plays. But Vertov wanted a cinema free not just from other arts, but from what he considered the tyranny of narrative. Cinema did not need narrative any more than it needed fiction. What it needed was abstraction. And if ever there was a clarion call for cinema to stand separate from all other arts, it was Man of the Movie Camera. A key to Vertov's cinema was a recent development in 1920s Soviet avant-garde art, factography. While Vladimir Lenin was still embedding the revolution amongst the populace through the newspaper Pravda, which means truth, the Soviet authorities needed to strictly control storytelling. New words were needed to reflect the new truth. Accordingly, factography was coined in reaction to the term documentary, which itself had only been created in 1926 by pioneering British filmmaker John Grierson. Since Grierson coined the term to describe films that strove to create the most objective depiction of reality as possible, factography, or fact-writing, codified the communist ideology for storytelling. It meant that there was little to no room for fiction. But the truth is, human beings need narrative because that is one way we thread our lives together. Here is Pamela J. Smith on the YouTube channel Film Courage, which offers invaluable insights for screenwriters. What are myths? Myths are not just the dusty old stories of the Greeks and Romans, nor are myths other people's religion. Myths are the stories that we tell ourselves to explain the world around us and within us. And as a side note of both of those, to justify the worlds that we have created. Man with a Movie Camera proved to be too avant-garde for the revolution. By then, Stalin had assumed full control of the Supreme Soviet and was already implementing the first of his disastrous five-year plans. And under the tyranny, there would be no room for Vertov or his experimentation. He was criticised for highlighting form itself as a thing of beauty instead of portraying the nobility of the worker. Or, to use Soviet-speak, he was guilty of formalist error. In the West, the phrase would be the far more clement art for art's sake. But here is the thing. Vertov so idealised the worker that, with the image of the Kino eye, he all but fused the worker with the machine. Which elevates the machine to the point that it dehumanises the individual which is the cinematic equivalent of what the Soviets did to millions of people. For decades, Man of the Movie Camera was greatly overshadowed by Eisenstein's Battleship Atemkin, which is understandable. That film's montage theory was easier to identify, comprehend and implement. More abstract, Vertov's montage was harder to understand and replicate. But that is not to say, Vertov invented techniques. Instead, rather like Citizen Kane, which hoovered up many techniques that had already been created in earlier films and then stuffed them into the one story, 
it is through the sheer intensity and application of such devices that Man of the Movie Camera has now found its position. Simply, it stands head and shoulders above not just Moscow, but every other City Symphony film of the era, and almost every other silent film as well. Sit in on any film course in any film school anywhere on the planet, and you will be very hard pushed to avoid screenings and forensic frame-by-frame -frame analysis of the film. Man with the Movie Camera is a film that the BFI Decadinal Survey now lists as number 8 in the all-time most important films ever made. If nothing else, the film can be viewed as a 67-minute compendium of purely cinematic devices. Which only goes to show just how well Vertov succeeded in creating a film that stood apart from the other arts. There is no such thing as a freeze frame in literature. Neither is there an equivalent of split screen or multiple exposure. Moreover, those devices now turn up in mainstream films. Consider Vertov's use of dissolves. There is an interesting use of it in, of all places, the rom-com Notting Hill. Directed by Roger Mitchell and written by Richard Curtis, William Hacker has just visited Anna Scott in her penthouse suite at the Ritz Hotel. As he leaves, cinematographer Michael Coulter films Hacker on an extremely long lens walking despondently through the arcade. And then, reinforcing that feeling, editor Nick Moore deploys a series of dissolves to indicate the moments where Hacker is lost in the turmoil of not having declared his love. A dissolve is one thing, multiple exposure is another, and towards the end of his commercially successful but critically mauled career, Tony Scott became increasingly experimental with colour stocks, frame rates and even drifting subtitles across the screen. And for multiple exposure, he played with it in Deja Vu, Domino and Man on Fire. David Lynch is another director who employs multiple exposures, using the device in The Elephant Man, Dune, Lost Highway, and in Mulholland Drive, the moment when, just after Betty and Rita, come across Diane's decomposing corpse. Lynch then freezes the women on screen in multiple images. And since we're on the matter of freeze, think of how often directors have interrupted the narrative by stalling the image. Some early examples, however, had to explain it so audiences would not be confused, as can be seen and heard here in It's a Wonderful Life. I'll look, Joe. Now look. I, I, I want a big one. What'd you stop it for? I want you to take a good look at that face. Who is it? George Bailey. But what is avant-garde is often absorbed by the mainstream cinema so much so that freeze frames occur in films aimed at children. This is me. I think it's apparent I need to rethink my life a little bit. As for split screen, the most obvious citations would be several films by Brian De Palma. From Sisters, Phantom of the Paradise and Carrie, to Blowout, Bonfire of the Vanities and Snake Eyes. Quentin Tarantino played with it in Jackie Brown and both volumes of Kill Bill while Wes Anderson has had lots of fun with it in Moonrise Kingdom and Isle of Dogs. But it took Christopher Nolan to completely reimagine the device when, in an Inception, he didn't split the screen, 
but instead folded over the entire city of Paris as if it were a crepe Suzette. I guess I thought that the dream space would be all about the visual, but it's more about the feel of it. My question is, what happens when you start messing with the physics of it all? But for all the films Man of the Movie Camera has ended up inspiring, something tells me that if Vertov were to come back today and see how much his techniques now sit comfortably in plot-driven, mainstream consumerist cinema, his head would never stop spinning.